is merely intruding on the valuable time of the speaker who all has something to say. Gentlemen, the speaker may be sober, but he's never been dull. T. Harry Williams. <laughs> Chairman and dignitaries at the head table, uh, dignitaries down below. Uh, I was uh, a little bit hurt during the previous introductions because I thought I was so well known to you and so close to you that I would get booed too. And, uh, uh, when I wasn't, I decided that maybe you were mad at me. Uh, I think this is my fourth appearance uh, before the round table. I was trying to cast it up with Pete a while ago, and we think it is the fourth. I may say that I appear at this fourth time considerably more at ease than the first time I appeared uh, when I had heard uh, such descriptions of the uh, savage and scholarly ferocity of this group. I think I was scared to death of Monroe Cockrell. Uh, and proceeded to placate him by handing out a numerous and lavish compliments. Uh, every time I've come here, uh, I have felt more at ease and uh, have enjoyed it, I think, more each time. Uh, it's one of the uh, best and most stimulating roundtables in the country. Now, the chairman, uh, no, not the chairman, the introducer, uh, really fail me in one respect tonight, because I told him to say one thing, which would enable me to tell a story. And in his haste to get sat down, uh, he completely neglected to say what I asked him to say, so I'm going to have to drag it in myself. I said, well, say that I'm working, have been working for a long time, on a biography of Huey Long, because that will enable me to tell a Huey Long story. So you see what happened. Nothing at all. <laughs> I am working on a life of Huey Long, and I am going to tell a Huey Long story. Uh, this is the way I think I will begin the book. Nothing like having a way to begin a book before you ever finish the research or sit down to write it. I think I'll begin it this way, by telling this story, which is probably too good to be true. Uh, it concerns, first of all, the economic origins of the Long family. One of the great myths is that they were very poor, very uncultured, the lowest uh, uh, culture. Uh, that is not true at all. Uh, they were not rich. They were, I would say, uh, middle-class people, property-wise. The whole family was devoted to education, and every member of it, there were nine of them, got at least a touch of a college education. Uh, why then the myth about the long poverty? Because in the era when Huey Long operated, it was considered good politics to emphasize the log cabin origin. If you came up from poverty, from nothing, uh, that was good politics. And Huey Long, like so many politicians of that time, highly exaggerated the poverty of his own family. And this story concerns the first time he campaigned in South Louisiana, where he was to make a series of speeches at a number of towns. And the local chairman, I mean the local politician who was taking him around said, now Huey, in your speeches today, I want you to remember one thing. You're from North Louisiana, but today you're in South Louisiana, and we got a lot of Catholic voters down here. Huey said, I know. So all that day, in speech after speech, he would say at one point, when I was a boy, I would get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I would hitch our old horse to the buggy, and I would take my Catholic grandparents to Mass. I would bring them home, and at 10 o'clock, I would hitch our old horse up to the buggy again, and I would take my Baptist grandparents to church. Well, that went on all day with very good effect on the voters. And on the way back to Baton Rouge that night, the local politician said admiringly, Well, Huey, you've been holding out on us. We didn't know you had any Catholic grandparents. And Huey said, Don't be a damn fool. We didn't even have a horse. 
epitomized in his personality much of the colorful and flamboyant state to which you are coming on your battlefield tour. Uh, to me, it is the most exciting state in which I have ever lived. I get mad sometimes about some things, but it still is a tremendously exciting place. It has been called some uncomplimentary things, such as a banana republic, uh, a uh, tropical Latin American uh, commonwealth uh, set down in the United States. Uh, somebody said that really its people, although this would be more true of South Louisiana than North Louisiana, that its people culturally are from the Mediterranean littoral. As A.J. Liebling said, the Louisiana mind is Mediterranean. It is speculative, devious, cunning, and sensual, which is right, I think. And trying to catch up Louisiana in a phrase, uh, Liebling came through with this wonderful description. He said it is the most western of the Arab states. <laughs> It is a, the place you are coming to is a free drinking, free eating, and free wailing section, and I cannot think of a more perfect marriage of elements than this section and the Chicago Roundtable. <laughs> you are going to get into some unusual places. Some of them are the damnedest places maybe you'll ever get into, I don't know. I'm not sure that you ought to get into some of them, but you're on your own. I may say here that the climate in a large part of the year is definitely subtropical. And at the time you come, the daytime temperature will undoubtedly be in the 80s and probably no lower than the 60s at night. Now, I know weather predictions are dangerous, but I think that's what it will be like, and you might like to think of that in your, the clothes you will wear. I think you would be well advised to wear uh, fairly uh, lightweight suits and to bring some protection against the rain because it is one of the uh, moistest areas uh, in the United States. Uh, Bob Riley, a former member uh, of the Roundtable uh, and the president of the now newly formed Baton Rouge Roundtable, uh, asked me to suggest this to you, and I will, you can do what you want with it. Uh, he suggested that on the battlefield tour at Port Hudson, which is a fairly rugged terrain, that you might care to bring with you some insect repellent. And uh, it is a very buggy region, uh, as all hot, moist areas are, and uh, uh, it might not uh, be a bad idea. Well, tonight, I want to talk to you about the Civil War in Louisiana uh, in very brief and general fashion. And I thought I would begin uh, however, by telling you uh, something about the work of the Louisiana Civil War Centennial Commission, uh, which is, is one of your hosts uh, on your visit there. Uh, the commission of which uh, I am a member and, in fact, the vice chairman. Uh, the L Louisiana Commission uh, originated in 1960. Uh, with a very modest appropriation uh, of $12,500. It was kind of an orphan. It barely got through the legislative hopper. Uh, the bill creating it called for eight members, one from each congressional district, uh, to be appointed by the governor. Uh, the governor uh, consulted with various people and for reasons uh, good to himself, and I think probably good in general, uh, decided to appoint as uh, three of the members 
uh, men who were in the legislature, uh, rather uh, prominent members of the legislature. And he indicated his desire that the chairman of the commission uh, ought to be a state senator. And therefore, uh, a very respected state senator, uh, Sylvan Friedman, uh, became the chairman of the commission. Now, I say I think that was good uh, because it enabled the commission uh, to get, in later years, increased respectful attention in the legislature. And uh, Senator Friedman uh, immediately named me as vice chairman. After all, I was the only one on it who really knew anything about the war. Uh, and uh, he and the other members uh, were uh, uh, strongly inclined from the beginning and became more so uh, to let me do uh, pretty much what I wanted. Now, the members of the legislature, I may say, uh, at the start uh, saw this commission as only one thing, uh, as uh, something that would uh, uh, stimulate uh, what is becoming called tourism, uh, something that would bring uh, tourists uh, to the state. Now, uh, my view was that was all well and good, uh, but the important thing to do uh, was to reproduce the story of the war for the people in the state, especially the school children, and to reproduce it in some permanent form for future generations. Now, fortunately, as it turned out, these two objectives fitted perfectly together because I was able to point out to the legislators that nobody in Louisiana or out knew anything about the war in Louisiana. It had been very little studied. Uh, people on the outside did not know that there had been any battles or campaigns in Louisiana. Uh, for that matter, people in the state did not know very much about what had happened. And my point was that in order, if you were going to bring tourists, you had to tell the tourists that there had been a civil war in Louisiana. And you could tell the same story to people on the outside, people on the inside, and to posterity. Now, I know Ralph Newman particularly, if nobody else, will appreciate what I will say next. Uh, everybody on the commission then felt this is great, but we have to do something to bring ourselves to the attention of the public, and particularly to the attention of the governor. Because I don't know how it is in Illinois, but in Louisiana, the governor is almost all-powerful, particularly in money matters. And we decided we would have to do this. We'd have to do something that would attract a lot of attention, and we decided to make a film, a 30-minute reenactment of the secession of Louisiana and telescope three days debate and action into 30 minutes. We hired the director of the little theater to direct it. We had to do it in a hurry. However, uh, we had no dearth of actors. Most of the actors were members of the legislature who for the past, past year had been getting ready to secede anyway, uh, and they really didn't need much rehearsing. Uh, I wrote the script from the original journals, and we uh, showed the film uh, at a, uh, a public showing, and the governor came, and then something very interesting happened. The governor sat there listening to the speeches, and he turned to his press secretary, and he said, uh, was that what they really said back then? And his press secretary said, that is from the original official journals of the convention. He said, how do these guys know where to find that stuff? You see? And this was the governor's introduction, I'm sure this has happened to an awful lot of people, to the method of research. And he was highly impressed by that fact. Now, <laughs> I, I know you laugh, and I know it's possible to laugh, but this is the way. This is the way that in this Civil War field, we bring an awful lot of people to the study of history, I think. Uh, Senator Friedman, after that, went to the reenactment of the first battle of Manassas. And he was tremendously impressed with the fact that scholars could go to sources and find out what people did and said and how they dressed in the past age. And I think this is a good thing when you can introduce uh, people like this, and in this way, if that's the way you have to do it, to the scholarly method. Well, 
The governor, uh, very much impressed, then said we could have, from the Board of Liquidation, which is an agency that has large sums of money for emergencies, we could have $25,000 more. So for the first year, 60 to 61, we had an appropriation of 37500 uh, After that, we were in the governor's budget. 61 to 2, we had 71250 1962 to 63, 50,000. 1963 to 64, 38,825. I don't know why that odd figure. And for 1964 to 5, we're asking to finish out the centennial, uh, $35,000. I may say we have spent very little of that on personnel. We don't have any executive director. A lot of the work has been done voluntarily by members of the commission. And uh, we feel that what we have accomplished is very good. In addition to this film on secession, which has been shown, I guess, in every school in Louisiana and to many uh, uh, civic clubs, uh, we have uh, published the four pamphlets and the map, uh, which have been distributed to you. Uh, we, we, we give all these away. We, we don't sell any of this. Uh, and we have distributed all these pamphlets, for example, to every high school, junior high school, and grade school in Louisiana, and I don't know how many thousands outside of the state. Sometimes I think every kid in every school in the United States is writing themes these days on the Civil War, uh, because the greatest request we get for these pamphlets is from school kids. And if people ever get worried that the audience on the Civil War is dying out. There must be another whole huge one uh, coming up of kids who are reading uh, the pamphlets of state centennial commissions. Uh, now, these were all very good, uh, but uh, my big objective, and the people on the commission bought this, was that we ought to leave behind us something very permanent and enduring, uh, something that would survive the centennial uh, as permanently as anything could. And therefore, we uh, uh, shied away from having anything to do with reenactments. Now, I don't particularly want to get into the reenactment business. I have some great doubts about them. Now, unless they're done awfully well, I think they're awfully bad. Uh, and uh, we have had nothing really directly to do uh, with any of the reenactments. So we might sponsor something like the General, the famous locomotive coming to Baton Rouge, or an Army exhibit of Civil War weapons. Uh, but uh, that is all. Uh, we have concentrated on the more uh, uh, permanent uh, results. Uh, at the beginning of the centennial, there were hardly any historical markers on Louisiana highways depicting the Civil War. Uh, we have put up 59, uh, and uh, these are rather long markers. Uh, they're very, very accurate. Uh, we put up over 20 alone. Uh, marking Grant's march down the west side of the Mississippi River, uh, perhaps the most important phase of the Vicksburg campaign. Uh, frequently, these markers are written by local people who want one, and then they send them to us, and I generally have to rewrite them, uh, because for various reasons, uh, as they often come in from the local people, they're highly inaccurate. Uh, like uh, 20 Confederate soldiers here held off 15,000 Yankees uh, or something like that. <laughs> now, uh, uh, we also uh, marked the graves of 122 soldiers at Port Hudson. Uh, curiously enough, at Port Hudson, where there's a national cemetery, uh, the graves of the Union soldiers are marked, the graves of the Confederate soldiers were unmarked. We were able to identify 122 Confederate graves and give them, uh, of course, uh, uh, anonymous markers. Uh, but the uh, thing that we, I think, uh, felt the best about uh, was the publication of uh, uh, three books. Uh, and I have them here, and I suppose they estimate, uh, they represent easily uh, an investment of $15,000 uh, that we uh, uh, gave to the LSU Press uh, to uh, publish these books, and we expect to publish more uh, uh, in the last year uh, of the centennial, one or two more. Uh, but uh, uh, interestingly enough, before the thing was over, everybody on the commission came to feel that the best thing we could do was to subsidize the publication of books. And to me, it was very encouraging 
that they would uh, come so quickly and so easily to that conclusion. And Mr. Donovan, I have uh, brought up uh, copies of these books, and I would like to present them to the round table for your library or wherever it is that you keep your volumes. I want to pause momentarily while I present these books to him. Well, Harry, I certainly appreciate this uh, thoughtfulness on your part, and on behalf of the Chicago Round Table, I am very appreciative of your effort. And uh, I, at the same time, would like to turn the tables on you for a moment and hearken back uh, some nine or ten years ago when you addressed this uh, assemblage here. And uh, we have put on tape a talk that you made in 1954. I believe the subject matter touched on Dr. Freeman. That's right. And in 1955, you gave us another talk, the subject of which was General Beauregard. That's right. And these have been uh, put on tape and saved for posterity. And we hope that you will accept these in uh, as appreciation from the Chicago Thank you. group. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. if it had a specific beginning in Louisiana uh, in January uh, 1861 when the state seceded from the Union, the sixth of the first seven states to secede. There's a very interesting question and a good deal of argument among Louisiana historians as to exactly how strong the public opinion was in favor of secession. Because Louisiana, in many ways, in 1861, markedly differed from other Deep South states. For example, because of its location at the mouth of the Mississippi River, it had, even in the developing age of railroads, a close economic connection with the states of the Upper Valley. And in the secession crisis, when in the South this question was discussed, one problem would always come up. People would say, if we secede, will they make war on us to bring us back? And in states like Georgia and Alabama, the secessionists would answer, no, they won't make war on us because one, secession is legal. Of course, this overlooked the important fact the other side might not see it that way. And two, they won't make war on us because they don't like us and they are glad to get rid of us. But Louisianians wondered about this. What if they seceded? How would the states of the upper Mississippi Valley feel about a foreign nation controlling the mouth of the Great River? And the attitude of many Louisianians was, was, was like this. Well, maybe they won't make war on you guys, but they might make war on us alone in order to get the Mississippi River back. And this was a cautionary influence. Another was that in South Louisiana, you had the only important economic group in the South that wanted a high tariff, the Louisiana sugar planters. And they very well knew that in the Confederacy, a high tariff policy was not going to prevail. Next, in New Orleans, the only big city in the South, you had a cosmopolitan port city that looked outward to the world. New Orleans was truly, uh, even in those days, uh, a world city. It did not look inward upon the South, it looked outward upon the great world. Uh, it had a cosmopolitan leadership. And so there were things that were different here. And in the election of 1860, in the preceding November, the distribution of the vote indicated that people in Louisiana had a good deal of doubts about taking a rash course. Breckenridge, who may be considered the extreme southern candidate, polled almost 23,000 votes. John Bell, 
a moderate Southerner, polled 20,000. And Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois polled 7,600. Now, if you assume that the votes of Bell and Douglas were votes for moderation, then in Louisiana in 1860, the moderate vote outweighed the extremist vote. But this, of course, was not going to last. For one thing, it wouldn't last because of the actions and the influence of the then governor, Thomas O. Moore, who was a determined secessionist, and who in December sent a message to the legislature saying, we ought to follow our sister states, and he persuaded the legislature to call an election in January for a convention to consider what Louisiana should do. Now, in that election, in January, the popular vote, as nearly as we can determine it, was 20,000 for secession and 17,000 for some kind of delay. Now, one of the big handicaps of the opponents of secession was that they didn't have a clear-cut program. They would say, let's consult with the other states and see what they do. Let's act in common. They couldn't hold out any sharp solution to this long, long sectional crisis. Whereas the seceders had the nice, simple solution. Let's go out and finish it, do you see? But still, it was 20,000 to 17,000. Uh, note, however, that that vote is 12,000 less than in the November election for president. And I think it might be assumed that the 12,000 who stayed at home were people who were against extreme action. I think that's a logical assumption that the 12,000 who stayed at home were disillusioned or something, and for some reason they didn't come out, but that they were not in favor of the extreme action of secession. Now this vote, however, returned to the Louisiana secession convention a great majority of people in favor of immediate secession. Uh, 80, 80 delegates for secession, 44 for delay, 6 who were doubtful. The convention met on January the 23rd, but before it met, two things happened. And here again you can see in a crisis like this the influence of one man, particularly somebody like a governor who is in a position to wield great power and to, to create an accomplished fact that may influence how people think. He sent state troops to seize the federal arsenal at Baton Rouge. And these troops took over the protests of the commanding officer. Nothing he could do about it. And then he sent troops to seize the two federal forts at the mouth of the river that you will cruise by, Fort St. Philip and Fort Jackson. Now these were overt acts of war, really, before the state has ever gone out of the Union. And there were a lot of people who didn't like it, but you see what the, what the result is. People say, well, damn it, he went ahead and he, he did it, maybe we ought to follow him. You see what? We can't undo it. He's, he's done this, and it's our job to support him now. And, and this shows, I think, how an executive, an executive official, by creating accomplished facts, can influence public opinion. Well, the convention met on January the 23rd, and three days later, the convention voted to secede, and notice this vote, by a vote of 113 to 17. In other words, a lot of the guys who were for delay when the time came to vote voted for secession. Then they asked everybody to sign the secession ordinance. And I think it's very interesting to note that even then, Seven delegates refused to sign it. Seven delegates refused to sign it. And these delegates, interestingly enough, were from the parishes or counties of Orleans, Caldwell, Caldwell, Catahoula, and Lynn, the big city parishes and the small farmer parishes. Wynn Parish, incidentally, was the home parish of Huey P. Long. And Wynn Parish was a hotbed of opposition to the war uh, during its entire four years. Uh, lest I give you a misimpression here that because some of these small farmer delegates refused to sign the uh, ordinance that the small farmers were against secession, that is not true. Uh, Professor Ralph Worcester, in his book on the secession conventions, finds 
that in Louisiana, as in other southern states, there was no clear-cut class division on secession. Some of the big planters were for it, some were against it, some of the small farmers were for it, some were against it. And so the die had been cast very enthusiastically, Louisiana went to war. And went to war, of course, like other southern states, woefully unprepared. New Orleans was the only metropolitan center in the state. It had in 1860 a population of something over 160,000, or about as big as present-day Baton Rouge. And it was the only really big city in the state. Baton Rouge, the capital, was in 1860 only 5,000. Every other town in the state was had a population of below 5,000. Only in New Orleans did you have anything like at manufacturing facilities, only in New Orleans did you have a really big-time banking center. Really, I guess you could say New Orleans was the only big financial center in the whole South. I think it's very significant that in the Confederacy's first bond drive, the two-fifths of the entire total were taken up in the city of New Orleans alone. The population of the state was 708,000 about half white and half slave. And Louisiana raised its armies by the customary method, calling for volunteers into the state service, then into the Confederate service. And an estimated 60,000 men out of a white population of 350,000 served in the Confederate armies. Now that's a pretty big proportion of the total population. I, I think it runs bigger than you would find uh, in uh, some northern states. I know it's a bigger proportion than in the state of Wisconsin. And uh, these troops that were raised in Louisiana uh, were uh, organized in probably uh, six, 60 infantry, cavalry, and artillery regiments. Uh, the casualties, if we estimate them at the a customary figure for all Confederate uh, soldiers during the Civil War were from 15 to 17,000. 15 to 17,000. Very curious thing, I noted in one of these little booklets, uh, by contrast, in World War II, only 6,000 Louisianians in service lost their lives. Now, we don't know too much about the physical characteristics of these soldiers, except in one thing that interests me very much. Uh, uh, we, we have a, a published four-volume collection which gives the name of almost every known Louisiana soldier. Now, some of these soldiers were captured, and on those that were captured, we have the fullest records, because they were in northern prisons, and the compiler of this book got the material from the northern prison records. And one thing they did in the northern prisons was this. They would weigh these guys, and they would take their height, and of course they'd get their age. And so for all these Louisiana soldiers, and I'm sure this is true of the South as a whole, who are in northern prisons, we have their physical statistics. And the amazing thing is that nearly every one of these guys, guess how tall they are, five feet four or five feet five, weigh 120 or 30 pounds. And on nearly every one of these guys who was in a southern prison, a northern prison, 14, 15, and 16 years old. And I suspect that these uh, physical figures uh, and these age figures would apply to a good many soldiers in all the southern states. Well, these Louisiana troops served uh, all over the South. Some of them served in Virginia. And uh, if you have read Dick Taylor's uh, Destruction and Reconstruction, uh, you may recall uh, that very nice episode when Taylor brings his troops into the Shenandoah Valley to cooperate with Jackson in 1862. He comes in late in the afternoon. They made a good march. And uh, he said, where is Jackson? He'd never seen him before. Somebody said, down, sitting on that fence down there. And Taylor said he went down there, and here was this very awkward-looking figure sitting hunched over the fence, sucking a lemon. And he reported, he said, General Taylor, sir, uh, re reporting with my troops. And Jackson sucked his lemon. And just at that moment, these Louisiana troops, many of whom were French, uh, broke ranks, and they had bands with them, 
and they began to play, the bands began to play, and all the men seized partners and began to dance. And that was so startling, he caused old Jack to take the lemon out of his mouth momentarily. He said, what troops are those? And Taylor said, those are our Louisiana troops. And he could see that Jackson was displeased, and he said, many of them are French, General. They, they like music, they like to dance. And Jackson sucked on the lemon, he said, thoughtless fellows for such serious work. Uh, well, I guess you could say that Louisiana produced its quota of civil and military leaders in the Confederacy. The outstanding Louisiana statesman, of course, is Judah P. Benjamin, often called the brains of the Confederacy, Attorney General, Secretary of War, and Secretary of State. There's something interesting about Benjamin that I think needs to be pointed out. Maybe you'll come on to it, and maybe you haven't. Uh, Benjamin, like nearly all the people in the Confederate government, at least the first Confederate government, was a first-generation rich man. I think you know about Benjamin's background. He was a Sephardic Jew, born in the West Indies, came to Charleston, then to New Orleans, very little money, became a brilliant lawyer in Louisiana, and a planter, and uh, a very wealthy man. Uh, three members of the Confederate cabinet were born abroad. Uh, Mallory, uh, born in Trinidad, Christian Christopher Memminger, born in Germany, and raised in a Charleston orphanage. Jefferson Davis was first generation rich. I don't mean these people necessarily came out of poverty like Memminger did. But some of them came out of what might be called middle-class origins. Actually, in the first Confederate cabinet, the only two men who could trace their lineage back and say, we are people of long-standing wealth, were Robert Toombs and Leroy Polk Walker. These were the new men of the Confederacy, and it was the new men of the Cotton South who were running the Southern adventure. Uh, the other leading Louisiana uh, Confederate uh, in civil government also shows this, uh, John Slidell uh, from New York, who came to Louisiana, became a United States Senator uh, and a leading political figure in the state, and during the war was Confederate minister to France. Uh, the two Civil War governors were Moore. I'm not sure whether Moore was a good war governor or not. We don't know enough about him. But early in 1864, a really remarkable man became governor, and that's Henry Watkins Allen. Uh, Douglas Freeman said he was the ablest state administrator produced in the Confederacy, and I suspect that may be true. A, a very, very, very unusual person. I could tell you a lot about his personality if I had time, uh, but uh, uh, a, a very able man, a very able leader. Well, you know, I think, the Louisiana Civil War generals uh, General Beauregard, of course, was the uh, most famous of the Louisiana generals. Um, I guess the next one would be Leonidas Polk. And I may say that uh, I agree completely with Mr. McWheeney in his review of Professor Parks' book that it's not a very critical evaluation of General Polk. Uh, I, 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 I agree with Mr. McWheeney that Polk was not a very good corps general. Uh, and that uh, uh, we haven't as yet got the true picture of him. Uh, Dick Taylor, son of the former president, very attractive personality, uh, author of this sparkling reminiscence. Uh, sometimes Braxton Bragg is classified as a Louisianian because he was living in the state uh, when the war started, although he was born in North Carolina. Now, the problem of studying Louisiana in the war is this that it was located in the Trans-Mississippi Confederacy, the three states west of the river, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas, were essentially a sub-province of the Confederacy. And after 1863 and the seizure of the river line, almost cut off from meaningful communication with the rest of the Confederacy with the result that the governors of these, these three states and the commanding general representing the Confederate government often had to take actions on their own because it just simply took too long to get word through to Richmond and back. 
And so in many respects, after 1863, the Trans-Mississippi Confederacy had to function on its own. And the city where the commanding general had his headquarters was known as the capital of the Trans-Mississippi South, or the Trans-Mississippi Confederacy. When Kirby Smith went out to take command, he wondered where he should set up his headquarters. And some people said it ought to be Arkansas, and some people said it ought to be Texas, but Kirby Smith wanted in a central location, and I always like to read this quotation from his letter in the presence of certain auditors, he said he, he knew where he was going to set up his headquarters. He said, even though it is a miserable place with a miserable population, I'm going to set up my headquarters in Shreveport, Louisiana. And Shreveport was known as the, the, the capital of this area. Now, here is a very significant part of the Civil War story, the administration of an area like this. And it's an awfully hard story to tell. I don't suppose it ever has been told, really. And maybe it will never be told. Do you know why? Because the people who were running this part of the Confederacy didn't think about future historians and write down what they were doing, what their administrative problems were, and how they met them. And this is a problem we often meet in Civil War research. I have had graduate students try to write theses on artillery units so we can find out how a Civil War artillery unit operated. You get all kinds of artillery diaries and letters. They don't think to tell you how they fired their guns or what they did. They knew. They weren't going to put it down in a diary. Same thing about staffs. We don't know enough about Civil War staffs. Well, do you think you can find out? Well, you're going to have an awful hard time doing it because this was the obvious thing to these people, and they don't write it down. And so it is with administration. Well, you are naturally most interested in the battles. The Trans-Mississippi Confederacy militarily suffered in that neither side committed in this theater its main strength, and I think rightly so. It was relegated as a sort of a side pocket or a side theater of the war. Especially after 1863, the northern government did not have to worry especially whether it occupied all of these three states or not. Because simply by holding the Mississippi River, it had them isolated and neutralized in the war. Therefore, the number of engagements or battles in all of the trans-Mississippi states are limited in number and in importance. Oh, you can pick out all kinds of engagements in Louisiana. The numbers vary from 566 down to 118. But most of these are very small affairs. And I want to say right now that I don't pretend to be an authority on them. And if some of you have been sneaking out and reading up and getting to be authorities on the Battle of Bayou Buck or Bayou Fordoche or Nurson's Bend or Irish Wood or whatever it is, I, I, I don't know about it, so don't ask me a question about it. But there were some operations in Louisiana that deserved the attention of all serious students of the war. They are, all of them, interestingly enough, connected with the two great rivers of the state, the Mississippi and the Red. And the first, in point of time, was the federal occupation of New Orleans. Now that's a pretty familiar story about how Farragut's fleet comes up the river, how it goes by the forts and the uh, garrisons mutiny and how Farragut comes up and makes the civil authorities of New Orleans uh, surrender the city to him. Uh, Pi Dufour has told it uh, in the night the war was lost. Uh, I think, like so many Civil War titles, uh, that overdoes the result. But there's no doubt of the fact that the fall of New Orleans was a bad, sad blow to the Confederacy. And, of course, the story of this campaign is a very dramatic one. Uh, particularly as the fleet came up the river. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, as it came opposite New Orleans, a young man watched it, uh, who later on became one of America's great writers, uh, George Washington Cable. And in later years, out of his vivid memories, uh, he penned an unforgettable description of the appearance of the Federal fleet. 
He wrote, All men, I see them now as they come slowly round Slaughterhouse Point in the full view, silent, grim and terrible, black with men, heavy with deadly portent, the long banished stars and stripes flying against the frowning sky. And then he describes how a party of uh, sailors uh, from the fleet land and go through a mob uh, up to demand from the civil authorities uh, the surrender of the city. He said two officers of the United States Navy were walking abreast, unguarded and alone, looking not to right or left, never frowning, never flinching, while the mob screamed in their ears, shook cock pistols in their faces, cursed and crowded and gnashed upon them. So through the gates of death, those two men walked to the city hall to demand the town's surrender. It was one of the bravest deeds I ever saw done. Uh, the New Orleans campaign is interesting for many reasons. It shows how a civil government can misjudge a situation. The Confederate government expected the attack to come from above the river, uh, uh, federal gunboats coming down instead of coming up through the Gulf. Uh, it's a very instructive campaign for the student of naval operations. And it's particularly instructive, of course, because New Orleans was the first large town in the Confederacy to come under federal occupation. It offers the first case study in what we call, I guess, allied military government, or military government of a defeated people. Uh, it was first exercised in New Orleans, of course, by the commander of the Federal Army of 15,000 that followed the fleet, uh, the colorful and flamboyant general who in many ways fitted in with the scene of the state, Benjamin F. Butler. And Butler proceeded to have himself a time in New Orleans. First of all, he executed a man called Mumford, who had helped tear down the United States flag from the mint and then tear it up and then had gone around town exhibiting pieces of the flag in bars. And Butler said, if I catch him, I'm going to execute him. Nobody believed it. He caught him and he did have him executed. Uh, in some Confederate annals, you will see Mumford referred to as, quote, the gallant boy Mumford. Uh, actually, he was a middle-aged professional man around town. Uh, his execution horrified people, even in the North. This was early in the war, and people as yet had not got used to the fact that this was a doggone rough war and people were going to get killed in it, and that you didn't go around tearing up flags. Uh, I've always been struck by the reminiscences of Mrs. Rose Greenhall, who was arrested in Washington for spying. She was put under house arrest and then exiled to the Confederacy. And she wrote a book about it, which is screamingly funny because she doesn't see any humor in it. And she said, what is freedom coming to in this country when a person can't go around spying without getting arrested? <laughs> I mean, she literally says that. People just couldn't get used to the fact that they were in a real hard slugging war. Well, uh, Mr. Butler got them, got them accustomed to it very, very uh, quickly. Um, he proceeded to get in fights with all the foreign consuls, uh, many of whom he arrested. Many of these guys uh, 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 represented some European country uh, in the back, uh, back room of a saloon or a store. Uh, if you ever want to see something funny, read the complaint of the consul of the Netherlands to his home government on how the sale of the Netherlands, which was the back room of a store and saloon, were searched by federal soldiers. Uh, Butler had the idea that these consuls were acting as spies for the Confederacy. And he, he sent a, a, a squad of men around to search this guy's property. And this guy sends back this indignant report to his government. He said, I planted myself in the door, and I said to that officer, you are on the sale of Her Imperial Majesty, the Queen of the Netherlands. And he said to me, get out of the way, fella. <laughs> and I said to him, don't you call a representative of Her Imperial Majesty, fella. <laughs> and he took me by the shoulder and shook me three times and said, get out of the way, fellow, fellow, fellow. <laughs> Well, next 
Westminster Butler issued his famous woman order, and you know all about that. Uh, personally, I think it was a smart way of dealing with an impossible situation. Uh, of course, he was wildly denounced for it, and declared an outlaw by the Confederacy. Uh, now, I may say here in, in this respect that uh, uh, somebody had to deal with the, with, with the situation the women were creating. And what Butler was afraid of was that they would do this or that and incite this population to rebellion. And he was awfully sensitive to the fact that he had only 15,000 men with him. He wasn't sure he could control the city. And to him, this was a self-enforcing ordinance. He said it doesn't mean anything. It, it merely says that if they do this or that, they shall be regarded as women of the town plying their avocation. I said, what does that mean? How does a gentleman regard a woman of the town? He ignores her, but from the way some of you guys are talking, I'm not so sure uh, what you would do. <laughs> now, uh, uh, I, I may say, too, that his, his order uh, stirred some resentment uh, on the part of the real prostitutes in New Orleans, of whom there were a number. Uh, after all, there may be a possibility of dangerous competition getting started here. And they took a horrible revenge on him. Uh, they would get his picture out and paste it in the bottom of chamber pots. Uh, it's, it's very, very hard to come by an original of these. Uh, uh, my wife, my wife, who is a southerner, was so impressed by it, though, that she got a chamber pot and pasted one of Butler's pictures in the web. And when you come to our home, you may see that memento. Uh, uh, Butler's action drew horrified comment, also abroad. And I've always been very much amused by a play that ran in London sometime after it. The English idea of the federal occupation of New Orleans. And the title of it is, was The Confederate's Daughter or the Tyrant of New Orleans. And among the characters was the, was the leading lady, Frances Herbert. I guess that was the English version of the Louisiana name Hebert. Uh, her uh, lover, who was in the Confederate Army, uh, Captain Ernest Travers, and her faithful Negro servants, uh, one of whom was called Lily White, uh, and another called Poppy, and the uh, English author decided to dress all the slaves in Turkish costumes, like they were in a harem. You know, they wore fezes and turned up shoes and all that. Now, the villain, of course, was Butler and his chief lieutenant. And, and the playwright gave his chief lieutenant a name just dripping with villainy. Jephthah Sliver. Isn't that an awful name? And Jephthah Sliver, according to the wording of the play, was, quote, seeking to possess Francis Herbert. And the climactic moment of the play comes when Jephthah and Ben corner Frances Herbert and are about to possess her, I guess, when suddenly one of her faithful Negroes appears and her lover and beat them off with swords. But the payoff was where they cornered her. They cornered her, according to play, below the islands on a ledge high above the Mississippi. <laughs> And the background description of the play says, during this scene, during this dialogue, there can be heard in the distance the roar of the great cataract of the Mississippi. <laughs> well, you know Mr. Lincoln's great evaluation of Benjamin F. Butler. Benjamin F. Butler was a legitimately dangerous person, I think. Somebody asked Lincoln, at one time, if he wasn't afraid of Butler. And Lincoln said one of those great sentences of summing up of his, you know, he said, Butler reminds me a lot of Jim Jett's brother. Jim always said his brother was the damnedest scoundrel in the world and in the infinite mercy of providence also the damnedest fool. <laughs> uh, the uh, federal line of occupation in South Louisiana uh, never ran north of Baton Rouge. Uh, the seizure of New Orleans uh, gave the Federals a base from which possibly they might have fanned all over the state, but the, federal, the government never gave them enough troop resources 
to really extend their boundaries beyond the southern parishes. The northernmost line of occupation was Baton Rouge. Uh, here on August the 5th, 1862, was fought a relatively smaller battle, a big for Louisiana, in which the Confederates tried to drive the Federal troops of Butler out and were defeated. The, the Federals then evacuated the town, but they came back to it later on. Now, on your tour, you will go past the sites of Fort St. Philip and Jackson, and you'll be able to get a pretty good look at them, but you will not be able to look at the site of the Battle of Baton Rouge, because the city has grown up all around it and over it. There is a national cemetery uh, where a part of the battle was fought, uh, but it's impossible today uh, to actually uh, go over the site in Baton Rouge and see uh, with any meaning uh, what happened. Well, the second important campaign uh, in Louisiana was the Port Hudson campaign of 1863. And this is usually considered as a part of and a footnote to the Vicksburg campaign. Now, actually, they're closely related. And as I indicated before, really, the vital part of the Vicksburg campaign occurred in Louisiana when Grant decided to march his troops down the west side of the river and cross and come out on the east side. But, but Port Hudson was a part of the Mississippi defenses. And while Grant was besieging Vicksburg, General Banks moved on Port Hudson with an army of around 30,000. Now, the Confederate garrison in Port Hudson numbered 8 to 10,000 behind very strong, although extensive, works. Now, I'll discuss General Banks in detail if anybody wants me to, but in my opinion, he was not a very good general, to put it mildly. He was brave and he was aggressive, but he was not a good handler of troops. He did not have a good army. A large number of his subordinate officers were very, very bad. Some of them were what was called the 19th Army Corps that came later to the Shenandoah Valley, and I'm pretty familiar with that 19th Army Corps, and it was not a well-officered unit. Um, uh, some recently published letters of a Michigan soldier tell about an appalling incident in the siege of Vicksburg when a drunk federal divisional officer comes into the 6th Regiment and has charged those breastworks. Apparently he was drunk, he didn't know what he was doing, and the 6th Regiment and some others rush out and charge him and, of course, get cut up with terrific slaughter. So, so this is not a well-led army. The brains at the top uh, is, is not too good. Now, of course, here on this question of 30,000 to 8 or 10, you get this very puzzling problem of numbers that throws people in the Civil War, particularly those who have not studied it a great deal. They'll say, look at there, 10,000 Confederates held off 30,000 Yankees. Now, we know, of course, that numbers like that don't necessarily mean much in the Civil War. We know that at Wilson's Creek, a Federal army of 5,000 attacked and almost defeated a Confederate army of 10,000. We know that at Chancellorsville, Lee defeated an army that was twice his size. We know particularly that when men were behind entrenchments, that one man could hold off three, four, or maybe more on the outside. Now, Banks tried to take the place by assault, like Grant did at Vicksburg, only he had more, more attacks. He gave it up and resorted to a siege. Now, Mr. Cunningham, the author of this book on Port Hudson, tells me that this is the longest siege in American military history. It started in late May and ended on July the 8th. Now, Mr. Cunningham is going to be your guide on the Port Hudson tour. And now he's very good. This book was a master's thesis, probably the most remarkable master's thesis I've ever directed. He found out most of it on his own. And it's awfully good. However, I think you will find that Mr. Cunningham is a little bit enthusiastic about Port Hudson and a little bit too much inclined to overdo this numbers part of it. Uh, you'll find him a very good guide, but you might have some fun with him uh, by challenging him uh, on uh, some of these points. Now, Port Hudson surrendered on July the 8th when federal soldiers tossed newspapers over the uh, parapets indicating that Vicksburg had surrendered. Now, 
here is the significance of Port Hudson, though. As I say, it's usually treated as a footnote to Vicksburg. They say Fort Hud uh, Vicksburg surrendered, then Port Hudson surrendered. But supposing Port Hudson had surrendered one month before it did, and Banks's army could have been added to Grant's army, then Vicksburg would have fallen much sooner. In other words, these two places depended on the other. And when, when Vicksburg fell, Port Hudson fell. But the reverse would have been true if Franklin Gardner, the Confederate general in charge of Port Hudson, hadn't put up such a very fine defense here. Uh, Port Hudson might have fallen a good deal sooner than it did. As I say, then Banks's army would have joined Grant's. And that might have created, of course, on the other hand, a very dangerous crisis for the Union. Because if N.P. Banks had gone up there, he ranked Grant at that time, and if he'd taken command, Vicksburg might never have fallen. <laughs> <laughs> now the third, the third and last big campaign, and I'll get it out of the way very briefly here, is the Red River Campaign of 1864, described so well by Ludwell Johnson in his book, Red River Campaign. It's a very unusual campaign because of its origins. Uh, one reason for it was partly military. It occupied the rest of Louisiana, and southern Arkansas, while Banks moved up the Red River, Frederick Steele was supposed to move down from Arkansas, they'd squeeze out the Confederates between them and plant the Federal flag in Texas. A second reason was political. If the Federals could occupy Louisiana and Arkansas, that would help uh, Lincoln's reconstruction plan. They'd have more states here, uh, more of these states to reconstruct. And a third reason, undoubtedly, was to get cotton, to get that war-scarce cotton. Uh, into the northern uh, economic system. Well, Banks and Steele, the, the Confederate commander at headquarters at Shreveport was Kirby Smith. And again, I won't, I won't get into Kirby Smith at this point. I'll talk about him later if anybody would like to ask me. Kirby Smith at one time, I think, had been a potentially a pretty good general. I think by the time he was sent west, he was too conscious of his reputation. Now, we know that happened to a lot of generals. They got thinking, you know, if I do something and lose, I got a good reputation, my reputation will suffer. But if I don't do anything, I won't make any mistakes, and my reputation will stand. It's not necessarily a conscious thing, but many of them doubtless have that. Freeman uh, emphasized that about so many Confederate generals. And it's true of Northern generals, too. But Kirby Smith, I think, undoubtedly had that feeling at this time. Now, his field army in Louisiana, maybe 11 or 12,000 men, was commanded by... Dick Taylor. Banks went north with 28 or 30,000 men, probably. 28 or 30,000 men. And he didn't encounter any opposition until on April the 8th, he got near Mansfield. And there, Taylor attacked him. And here is one of the most misunderstood battles in the, in the war, I think. And here is another thing where we've had so much trouble with people in Louisiana getting them to understand this numbers business. It's very hard to convince people who haven't studied battles that when you say anything about numbers in a battle, you have to analyze that very carefully and see how many of these men actually were on the scene or got into battle. Now, one whole division of Banks' army under A.J. Smith was back at Pleasant Hill. Wasn't on the, on the field at all. They said, Banks had 28,000 men. Well, he had at the most 18,000. 18,000. And he was marching in enemy country with one of the silliest march formations, I guess, in the history of war. Had his cavalry in front, and then a lot of his artillery and baggage, and then his infantry. Now, that's not a good marching formation if you're expected to encounter the enemy. And that's when Taylor hit him at the Battle of Mansfield or Sabine Crossroads. And he just cut through that Federal Army like a big knife going through cheese. 11,000 against 18,000, but as Taylor admitted in his memoirs, he had numerical superiority at every point of contact on the field because Banks' Banks's army was so strung out behind. And he drove the Federals back to Pleasant Hill. And here on the next day, April the 9th, another battle was fought because Taylor had that aggressive instinct. He attacked again, and he was repulsed. Now, Pleasant Hill is usually called a, a, a draw, but if anything, it was a federal victory. And Banks' officers said to him, 
Now let's resume the advance and go on to Shreveport. And here is where in war you see the importance of the general and the importance of nerve. The banks were so badly shaken by what had happened that he said, no, we've got to retreat. And he started to retreat down the Red River. Now you can imagine what that did to the psychology of his army and how it lifted the psychology of Taylor's army. And Taylor followed him with his much inferior army all the way down to Alexandria, trying to snap him up if he could. Well, he couldn't snap him up, but snap at him and do a lot of damage to him. And when the Federals got to Alexandria, they had a real crisis. The river was low, and Porter's gunboats couldn't go over the shoals. And the army couldn't go on without the gunboats. They had to stay to protect them. And that's when this Wisconsin colonel who had been on the lumber business, Joseph Bailey, came forward and said, I know how to deepen the streams of a, of a, of a river. You build wings out, dams, so you narrow the stream, and then you can float your ships over. And they turned practically the whole army loose for days here, building these wing dams out in the river. If you're ever up around Alexandria, you can see some remnants of those dams even to this day uh, in the Red River. And that way, they floated the ships over. Now, at that point, you see another example of poor leadership, though. Kirby Smith recalled most of Taylor's troops because he said, I got to call your army back to meet this threat coming down from Arkansas. Taylor said, when they find out Banks is retreating, those troops coming out from Arkansas are going to retreat too, which was right. Kirby Smith said, we can't take a chance. And all the rest of his days, whether in his writing or whatnot, Dick Taylor pursued Kirby Smith for making, he said, one of the great mistakes of the war. Are we singing up here again or something? Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, Banks, finally, when he got past Alexandria, retreated without any trouble. He got back to New Orleans. And here, though, was a campaign that had a great result on the 1864 campaigns. Because General Grant, and sometimes this is forgotten, had planned not two offensives, the Army of the Potomac in Virginia and Sherman's into Georgia. He had planned three offensives against the Confederacy, and the third one was to be by Banks. Banks was supposed to move from New Orleans across the coast and then up to Montgomery, Alabama. And then when Sherman got to Atlanta, Grant thought that someplace Sherman and Banks could link up and combine their armies and go where they wanted to. Banks' army was so done in for the Red River campaign, it could not participate in that offensive. I don't know how much that lengthened the war. Somebody has said at least by two months, but I think possibly even more than that, the failure of Banks in the Red River campaign. But perhaps the most important result we can get from the Red River campaign and from so many studies of the Civil War is here the, the, the importance of the leadership of the leader, in this case, the leader of an army. You can say in another case it might be the leader of a country. And here in the case of Banks, who lost his nerve after Pleasant Hill, of Kirby Smith, who lost his nerve in a victory, you see, I think, as good example as you can find in history of the lack of leadership throwing possible victory away.